It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. version, which is certainly great, but uh, this is by Big Joe Turner. I'll tell you, I, I, I have no desire to comment much further on this uh, Donald Trump indictment out of Manhattan, um, because I feel like it's almost, uh, look, I realize it's historic, but I have nothing new to say about it. It's already been uh, talked about by everybody from a legal perspective, from a political perspective. It's so silly that uh, we're, we're prosecuting someone, even a former president, for a crime like this. And there are all sorts of presidents that have committed very serious crimes that have gone unpunished, unprosecuted, and who have not seen their esteem suffer in the slightest. In fact, the more time that we've gotten away from these crimes, we have seen their public esteem grow and their legacy improve, believe it or not. And every once in a while, you come across an article or a column that says brilliantly the words that you feel but are not intelligent enough to come up with on your own. And that's where Ben Burgess comes in. Uh, We've talked to Ben before, a bright guy, author of the book Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a a critique of the contemporary left, and his recent column in the Daily Beast on this subject was... Absolutely on the money. Ben, I know it's early. I appreciate you joining me on the radio. Good morning. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Ben, remind folks um, where you come from politically. You're not exactly a dyed-in-the-wool right-winger who uh, voted for Trump twice and gave him a a large contribution to that whole thing, right? Uh, No, no, I'm certainly certainly not. I was a, you know, I was a Bernie Sanders guy. Uh, Joe Biden was a very distant second choice. Uh, was uh, was not uh, was not happy about the uh, the choice that I was presented with in 2020, and uh, and I would certainly never vote for Trump. Uh, I'm a columnist for Jackman Magazine, it's a Democratic Socialist magazine, and look, I'm not I'm not against uh, prosecuting. You know, Trump or any other ex-president, even for very petty crimes. I mean, if he, you know, if he speeds on his way home from Mar-a-Lago, I think he should get a ticket like anybody else. Uh, but, uh, but what I do have a problem with is the fact that, like you say, so many more significant crimes are going have gone totally 
totally unpunished. That uh, that at the same time that Trump is being prosecuted, uh, I mean, I know that the legal case is a little bit more complicated, but the core of it is for paying hush money to a porn star. At the same time, you have somebody like George W. Bush, uh, who has not been prosecuted for uh, starting an aggressive war based on lies. You have, uh, or you know, Dick, you know, Dick Cheney, who was certainly right there with him. Uh, if you want to go back a little bit further in recent American history, you have somebody like Henry Kissinger, uh, who was involved in very serious crimes uh, committed by the Nixon White House. And uh, I, I think that, you know, I, again, it's it's not that I, you know, my point is not, oh, Donald Trump should be allowed to commit a minor crime or two. It's that uh, it's that if we're going to uh, start prosecuting ex-presidents for even very petty crimes like uh, like this one, we should certainly start prosecuting them for really serious crimes that uh, led to an enormous amount of death and suffering. Well, so uh, let me let me dissect a few different things there, and then I want to touch upon a few other issues with you. So when it, I, I agree. If uh, Donald Trump is speeding, he should absolutely be pulled over and uh, given a ticket like anybody else. As Ulysses S. Grant, uh, while he was president, uh, that's exactly what happened. He paid a $25 fine uh, wh- when he was speeding in Washington, D.C., and that was someone that served under him in the Civil War that gave him that ticket, and he paid it happily. It seems like what happened here with Trump, though, is that if he wasn't Donald Trump, I think it's very unlikely that this crime ever would have been prosecuted, especially by a local prosecutor. It seems like this prosecutor was trying to nail him, not because he saw a crime being committed and then investigated who committed it. It seems like he was trying to find an excuse just to prosecute Trump for something. I mean, would you agree with that analysis? Uh, maybe, yeah. I think that there are uh, there are actually more serious things that Trump has been accused of in other jurisdictions. Oh, sure. Okay, this, yeah, but I'm not talking in, Georgia in case, or the documents case or, you know, anything yeah, related to January 6th. I'm just talking about sure. this Manhattan just, DA just uh, this, situation. Just this, uh, the Alfred Bragg thing, yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's possible Bragg, you know, just wanted, was, was, uh, just wanted to, uh, to be the first one to charge him with something. Uh, like it's it's a it's a little bit of a legal gray area, is my understanding, because on the one hand, uh, the core of it, uh, you know, like Trump is guilty of, but on the core thing, I don't think anybody really denies that part. But also the core thing, the statute of limitations would have passed if not for this claim that it was being done in pursuit of this other crime and. Uh, and the uh, the argument on the other crime is a little bit tenuous, you know. So uh, I, I mean, I, I think I think Trump may you know may well end up you know uh, walking on uh, on this. And in fact, you know, if you're one of the you know if you're if you're some other prosecutor who's like you know who's looking into one of these other offenses that you just mentioned, you know, you might actually be very pissed off. About uh, that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think he, uh, the only people that he's ticked off more than Trump supporters has been the other Trump prosecutors. But uh, what I know. All right. Uh, now you alluded to George W. Bush and Dick yeah. Cheney. Uh, it seems like uh, t- the years tw- 2001 through 2009 were a long time ago. And in some respects they were other respects they weren't. 
Give folks a refresher course of things they did, not that were unpopular, but what were legitimately criminal that they could have been prosecuted for. Yeah, I mean, so I I think that there are a few things, but the most important one is uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, which uh, which is is a crime not just in a moral sense, although it's certainly that. I mean, you know, there are probably, you know, statistically there are probably people listening to this who had somebody they cared about who um, who came home in a flag draped coffin because of this war that was based on total lies and nonsense. And so, you know, what was taken from them could certainly never be given back. And I mean, that's that's a crime in that sense, but it's also a crime in the strict legal sense uh, that uh, if you look at the Nuremberg Tribunal that was set up after World War II, it declared that the first and most important war crime was launching an aggressive, unprovoked war. Uh, the uh, the UN Charter uh, is very uh, is very clear on this uh, that the uh, that uh, that it's it's a violation of international law to uh, to start uh, to start aggressive unprovoked wars and uh, the U.S. Constitution uh, says that uh, treaties that the United States is signatory to have the full force of law that it's the uh, supreme supreme law of the land that's in Article Six. And the U.S. is a signatory to the U.N. Charter. Uh, so I, I think there is actually like a very straightforward uh, legal case uh, to, uh, to be made uh, that, the, uh, that the launching of the invasion of Iraq uh, was not just criminal in the sense that it was morally horrific, although it certainly was that, uh, but, uh, but that it, it was literally uh, a crime. And, and to really put this into perspective – uh, that if we're you know if we're comparing crimes, um, that you know what you know, like whatever you think about the the legal rationale for this particular prosecution of Trump, uh, I mean if if we're going to start charging people with that, then we should certainly start charging people for crimes that uh, that have had these enormous impacts on the. You know, certainly Iraq, the region, uh, certainly the families of thousands of Americans who died there, and really the really the entire world. I mean, like it, like just to just to pause because I I think it's very easy to to forget some of this because you know things move on and you know oh well you know this all started 20 years ago mm-hmm. and it sort of feels like ancient history, uh, but. Uh, but this is uh, this is a conflict uh, where hundreds of thousands uh, of, of of people died in Iraq and in Syria with the you know violence and chaos spread there. Uh, there were millions of people who became refugees either internally they fled from one part of the country to the other, or uh, or external refugees. Uh, the long-term consequences of what this happened. I mean, if you think about the chaos and bloodshed. In the Middle East, that you know that happened uh, really for decades afterwards. You start thinking about things like the the rise of ISIS, you know, which would not have happened if not for uh, for the chaos uh, in uh, in Iraq. I think that crimes don't get much more uh, 
crimes don't get much more significant than that. And, you know, and I, I wanted to start with that because that's the most absolutely that's, uh, and that's the largest, the largest ticket item. But I mean, I also think if you talk about the CIA torture program, mm-hmm. there are many other there are many other items on this list. There was a book written uh, by a, a pretty accomplished attorney, and he divides the 269 war crimes of the Bush administration into four different classes. Uh, war crimes committed in launching a war of aggression, 36 war crimes committed in the conduct of war, with 175 war crimes committed in the treatment of prisoners, and 52 war crimes committed in post-war occupation. Now, a lot of people have said, and I think the people that have said this are completely incorrect, that, oh, now we look like a third world country because we put the person that lost the um, election on trial. I actually think that um, it is a very healthy sign a of a democracy when they prosecute former leaders. And we've seen Many of them do that. South Korea uh, did it. Italy uh, did it. Israel, they're going after their their current leader. Brazil mm-hmm. uh, did it. Uh, country after country has prosecuted. Uh, France with uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. You, there's country after country that have prosecuted that uh, their, their leaders for the crimes they committed in office. So then in comes Barack Obama, who supposedly mm-hmm. wanted to turn the page on every aspect of the Bush administration, was going to end the war in Afghanistan. He didn't do that. Was going to close Gitmo. He didn't do that. Uh, was going to close, end the war in Iraq. Eventually, he got around to that. Um, and he announces one of the first things he did in office is that they're not going to even investigate the Bush administration, Bush and Cheney, for any war crimes. How does Obama say that publicly with a straight face? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's this idea that, oh, you're becoming a banana republic if you prosecute uh, former leaders. I I think, I I mean, it, that is exactly backwards, that, they, that, uh, that what you're showing when you refuse to prosecute former leaders who've committed serious crimes is that you have two laws, one for people with enough power, had one for everybody else. Uh, and uh, if you believe in the rule of law, the rule of law should apply to everybody. And uh, so when you think about like the immediate context of you know what Obama said in that case, you know was about uh, the uh, was about the torture program. Uh, and uh, you said he's going to look you know look forward, not backwards, which is a great standard if you know, if you're uh, you know, if you're arrested for, you know, like if you uh, you try to hold up a liquor store or something, you know, you should uh, you should tell them that, you know, that, you know, you want to look forward, not backwards. And we shouldn't spend all this time talking about the liquor store robbery that happened in the past. Uh, but uh, but I I think that that is a particularly horrifying example in many ways, you know, because we're talking about, you know, people who uh were oftentimes, you know, they were uh, they were waterboarded, which is, by the way, uh, one of the crimes that Japanese officers who were actually executed uh, after World War II uh, in the War Crimes Tribunal were, you know, that is part of what they were accused of in some cases was waterboarded American uh, American POWs, uh, and 
a lot of what happened in those black sites uh, and uh, in Gitmo and Abu Ghraib was much worse uh, than uh, than waterboarding. If you really wanted to look into the uh, into the lurid details of that, and when you say uh, we're not going to prosecute uh, anybody uh, for that, uh, then uh, then you you've just uh, you've just given permission to the next guy who's in office to do uh, exactly to do exactly and that's what's so frightening so obama decides not to do it now this was a case that the uh, trump brag case that was passed on by federal prosecutors and then brought by a state prosecutor is there an argument to be made that a local prosecutor could prosecute bush and cheney for the crimes they committed in office even though the federal government didn't do it yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that the uh, like in the Alvin Bragg case, uh, the legal gray area is that a crime that does fall within his purview was committed in the service of this other crime that doesn't fall within his purview, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe not. Right? The courts will uh, will have to uh, will have to uh, to hash this out. But the, you know, I, I think the, you know, I mean, and, and look, if some local prosecutor somewhere uh, came up with a, uh, you know, came up with a legal argument for uh, for doing this, I, would, you know, I would, I would be all for it. I mean, I would anything, uh, you know, anything that would actually make some of these people face consequences for what they did, I think would be gotcha. a good thing. But yeah. I think, I think the real, the real question is. Why is it Merrick Garland doing it? Right. I think that's and that is a great question. Now, at this point, would the statute of limitations have run on those crimes, to the best of your understanding? Well, I don't think there's a statute of uh, limitations on war crimes. I mm-hmm. mean, if you, uh, you know, like uh, generally speaking, you know, this is you right. Know, that's right. They're still going after Nazis. That's true. Yeah. I mean, there were people who, you know, there were people who were. Uh, you know, there were prominent cases like in the late 90s of, you know, former Nazi uh, war criminals who'd led quiet lives. And, you know, like I think one guy was in Ohio, like a concentration right. camp guard who lived in Ohio since the 1940s. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think that that's uh, – and, you know, I, I think that that's something that you – again, it, you should be uh, – you should be prosecuting people for if you're serious Absolutely. About Absolutely. And it's – and it's and it's also just I mean it's also really worth taking a beat to remember how bad that Obama president was because at that point uh, you know I mean okay there's no legal statute of limitations that any of this stuff as far as I know but they have a but at that point that was fresh absolutely I mean, the the people who done this who authorized this for the highest levels had just left office and we we're saying. Okay, we're already shaking the etch a sketch and uh, and pretended this didn't happen. Right. Uh, yeah, and and I understand the need to do that politically and to move uh, look forward, not backwards, as Obama said. But at least Gerald Ford, when he did that with Nixon, he at least was bold enough to pardon Nixon, and he always said that by Nixon accepting that pardon. He was accepting responsibility for having committed those crimes. The American people got no such satisfaction from Bush needing to accept a pardon from Obama. Uh, so that's uh, we could talk about about this one all day. Very quickly, I want to get your take on two other subjects: the yep. leaked documents that have come out about the 
uh, Ukraine-Russia situation. A lot of interesting information about this. Mm -hmm. Interesting information that the U.S. is spying on everybody, including our allies, including Zelensky, including the South Koreans. The South Koreans are not at all happy about this. Information that the Mossad actually helped foment some of these uprisings in Israel that everybody thought was spontaneous. Uh, Tell me what you think the biggest takeaways are from these leaked documents that we've seen thus far. Yeah, well, I want, you know, one thing that is a really important takeaway uh, is that Zelensky has uh, apparently one of the things that we learned from spying on him uh, is that uh, if he got the longer range missiles uh, that he wants, that he wants to strike targets within Russia. Now, from his perspective, that's understandable. Russia, you know, Russia invaded his country. You know, he wants to fight them off using every tool at his disposal. Uh, But it's uh, from the perspective of avoiding a wider war that could be catastrophic for for everybody, for the entire world, uh, certainly for us, you know, uh, but also for the Ukrainians, also for everybody, that the uh, this is uh, this is a very, very big deal. And I I think it does, uh, you know, like. I think that I think that things like that, things like the revelations about U.S. intelligence estimates that say that there's no realistic possibility, basically, that uh, that the war is going to wrap up with some total Ukrainian victory anytime soon. I think that the reason that it's important and the reason that, you know, I mean, whoever leaks this, uh, frankly, I, I think, you know, uh, obviously right now, whoever leaks this is going to be very worried about being discovered and arrested. But, you know, if I had my way, they'd get a medal because I, I think that this is a – these are questions that in a democracy Absolutely. We, should all, we should all be talking about. That if – oh, hey, so it turns out that there is no scenario whereby there's going to be a quick Ukrainian victory. So – how much longer are we going to continue to play nuclear roulette? You know, how much uh, how much longer are we going to pour resources into this into this conflict? Is it actually more humane to do that rather than seeking a negotiated settlement? Oh my God! Uh, if uh, if if people do get these longer range missiles, uh, then uh, that that could lead uh, that could lead to really disturbing escalations of the war. These are all things that. You know, on the premise that you know citizens of the democracy should uh, should be having a vigorous public debate about what the foreign policy should be, that these are things that allow that to be a much more informed debate. Uh, let me end with this, Ben, uh, because, and we've got to have you back soon because there's so many things I want to ask you about. You are a lecturer at Rutgers, but as I understand it, you're on strike now. Why are you on strike? Yeah, so the strike uh, started on uh, Monday morning. Uh, so contract negotiations have been going on for uh, for a year and going nowhere. And I think that uh, the sort of fundamental thing to understand about all of this uh, is that Rutgers, like many universities, as there are trends across higher education in uh, the United States increasingly wants to rely on a workforce that's much more precarious, has many fewer job protections, and that they just don't have to uh they don't have to pay as much, right? You know, they they try to keep people every, you know, every year just below the threshold of the number of classes they have to they wear if they assign them that many classes, they'd have to reclassify them as full time. 
pay them much more money, give them health insurance. And I think this goes along with a lot of other trends elsewhere in American society. Think about the difference between a traditional cab driver with, uh, with benefits and retirement plan and an Uber driver, mm. for example. And, uh, and so I, I, think that, uh, I think that in terms of getting Rutgers to sort of stand by the values that it often claims when it's easy and cheap uh, to, uh, to stand by and, uh, and having, you know, having better, uh, better conditions, having, you know, having the possibility of, you know, of a kind of security and, and dignity for the people who are doing the work that actually keeps, keeps the university going. I think this is potentially very, uh, very important. And I know, uh, so, uh, you know, the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, has said he wants to uh, to mediate this, but I, I really hope that he doesn't just want to sort of get a resolution really quickly, even if it's one that doesn't really address the issues uh, that caused this in the first place. And, you know, and it is actually going to do it in a way sure. that's uh, that's that's going to uh, that's, that's going to allow for like a meaningful change in the way that Rutgers does business. All right, uh, Ben, uh, going to have to end it there. I hope people check you out in the pages of The Jacobin. They could check you out your writing at uh, jacobin.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-I-N. And your book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, is still available. And uh, it's not just available. It's more relevant than, than ever. Ben Burgess, thank you very much for the time this morning. All right. Thank you so much, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.